Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Yeah. And welcome back to episode 26. Yay. Woo. (laughs) In this episode, we'll be talking about the history of cardiovascular disease and the consequences of leaving women behind in the field for many, many years. And this topic just felt right for me because I just finished my cardiovascular unit and I found there are a lot of surprises that specifically pertain to women. Either disease is most commonly seen in young women or in postmenopausal women, or some diseases are just more prevalent in women in general, or other times women are completely ignored. And this is really important to talk about because in the United States, heart disease is the leading cause of death for women. It kills one in five, and it's the number one killer in African-American and white women specifically. It's tied for cancer for Alaska Native women, and it's second to cancer for Hispanic and Pacific Islander women, according to the CDC. So very big deal, something that for sure needs to be talked about. Mm -hmm. One source even said that heart disease kills more women than all cancers combined, which is kind of crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, so cardiology is a profession where women's health is so vastly important, and therefore I wanted to dip my toes in this topic a little bit today, and I hope that you will all join us along the way. Yay! Yay, so Alicia, what do you know on this topic? I'm sure you know a lot, but like, I don't know, give us some like fun tidbits of things you know. I don't know if I actually know like a crazy amount, but I do know, I think there's a lot of relation in this topic between this topic and uh research and the lack of women in research i think those things Mm kind of go hand in hand and so i know like specific things like how presentations of different cardiovascular disease like the way that they manifest in biological females versus males can be different and that's something Mm -hmm. that we don't talk about enough and so women don't realize that they're for example having a heart attack because they're like oh the pain should be radiating to my left arm but it's not it's radiating to my jaw and so I can't be having a heart attack but that's not true because Mm -hmm. the presentation's just different um yeah and then yeah like different drugs work differently on women versus in men And the reason it's been an issue is because we haven't had women in clinical trials for these heart drugs. And so we didn't know the dosing and things like that. So generally, I know like little tidbits about like random things. But I'm excited to see and hear what what you've compiled. Yeah, well, you know, you just gave a perfect summary of the episode right there. So we're going to dive like a little deeper into it. Okay, great. Okay, let's get into it. Let's do it. So before we dive into the women and into the cardiac diseases of today, I want to touch a little bit on the history of cardiovascular disease. Because today, cardiovascular disease rates are extremely high for a number of reasons, and this is um, pertaining to the U.S. So reasons such as the American diet that contains fast food and processed food, high smoking rates and lack of physical activity, etc. Lots of reasons for cardiovascular disease to be high. But I think sometimes this leaves people to believe 
that heart disease is a new thing, when in reality, it has always been around, just not quite as prevalent. So it's been around for quite a long time. Alicia, where do you think cardiovascular disease has been found from history? In like ancient Egyptian history? (laughs) Yes, Yes. and and more. Mesopotamian history? It doesn't get older than Mesopotamia in my mind. Um, that is where history begins for you. In, in, in my in brain, probably. it's Gilgamesh and then, like, forward. <laughs> like, probably every ancient, what are those things called? Neighborhoods? Not neighborhoods. <laughs> ancient empire? I don't Neighborhood? We're, why did I say that? <laughs> ancient neighborhoods. Ancient suburbia. <laughs> okay, I was thinking, yeah, just, like, basically every civilization I'm sure heart disease has come up. Yeah, so actually, heart disease has been found in ancient mummies from Egypt, Peru, mm-hmm. um, the ancestral Publian of the Southwest, which is in Southwest, like, Americas. Mm. Um, so it's a indigenous population to the United States. And in the Ungoin of the Altuan Islands, which is a native population from Alaska. Hmm. So in those mummies from those areas, um, 137 mummies were studied, and it found that 34% of those mummies had atherosclerosis. Hmm. And, okay, so let me explain what atherosclerosis is, because, like, why would you know that if you're not in medicine? It's not anything too exciting it's not basically a disease that causes a buildup of like a plaque in your arteries and it commonly causes myocardial infarctions or heart attack and these plaques are due to high cholesterol levels and that cholesterol just starts like shoving into the walls of your arteries and therefore you get like these big plaques super fun and it turns out that ancient people had these cholesterol plaques too Interesting. Which also means that they had myocardial infarctions, or like the heart attack you think of. And you're like, no, this can't be true. You're just like correlating it that like there's no evidence. But alas, (laughs) there is evidence. Alas. (laughs) So in the Abergus Papyrus, Mm. which is one of the oldest medical texts from ancient Egypt, it states, um, and I quote, And if thou examinest a man for illness in his cardia, and he has pains in his arm, in his breast, and in the side of his cardia, and it is said of him, it is illness, then thou shalt say thereof, it is due to something entering the mouth, it is death that that threatens him. So basically, they're saying that this man is presenting with like pain in his chest and pain in his arm. And just, like, that whole area. And then they're saying, okay, if you're presenting with this, then, like, you're going to die. Like, you're just being threatened by death. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that that sounds like an MI. That sounds like a heart attack to me. Yeah, literally. Like, he's having this pain that's radiating to his arm. Very typical, um, like, expected cardiac symptoms. Totally. And then there's also an Arabic love poem called the Majun Leela that recounts chest pain the same thing also known as angina yeah um that is experienced during an mi and this poem goes 
My heart is firmly seized by a bird's claws. My heart is tightly squeezed when Lila's name flows. My body is tightly bound. Which personally, I think that could apply to a lot of things, but like they really think this was explaining Ange enough. Wait, that's so funny. They're like, you see the girl you love, chest pain, it's Angina. <laughs> it's it's heart pain, it's chest pain. I'm like, that's funny. That's how I feel too. Actually, no one and nothing has ever made me feel so like in love, so enamored that I just get rapid onset Angina. <laughs> but what's funny and like I don't really get into this later, so I'll mention it now, but a lot of times they thought that cardiac disease was in really emotional people. So, like, if you were a man presenting cardiac, you were just, like, very angry and, like, very emotional. And then it's funny because later on we'll talk a little bit about how, like, women presenting with cardiac symptoms are just said to be, like, being emotional. Mm. So they're kind of tied, like, hand in hand, like, this emotion and this chest pain. That's interesting. Okay, we're going to talk about it later? A little bit. Okay, yeah. I'm going to make a mental note of something to mention. Let's keep okay, going. sounds good. I'm going to tread on. Okay, so these accounts of cardiovascular disease, there weren't that many throughout history, but those were like the big ones that people really took a hold on. But it wasn't until about the 1700s when William Herberton published a paper that detailed the symptoms of angina and that he had um, like very thoroughly studied. And this kind of started the ball getting a roll on in terms of heart disease. So after William, there was numerous authors and studies published over the following centuries that spoke of this chest pain that brought death and the involvement of clogged arteries. Mm. Procedures were invented and medications were put under trial. The coronary care unit was even established in the 1960s, which requires EKGs on all patients, external defibrillation, and more to help reduce hospital mortality. Because before that, when people would come to the hospital with cardiac symptoms, they would just put them in a unit and not watch them, and then they'd just go back and they would be dead. Yeah. Like, there was, like, no monitoring the heart. Mm. So... Overall, cardiovascular disease has been around for a long time. It's extremely well studied as medicine has advanced. But until recent decades, we haven't really talked about women's cardiac health, which is very surprising because ever since 1908, cardiovascular disease has been the number one killer of women. So that's for over 100 years now. Yeah. And even when the 19th Amendment was passed in the 1920s, cigarette companies marketed smoking specifically to women, saying like, oh, smoking is for liberated women who want to get slim. Mm, No, madam. (laughs) Yeah, which inherently increased the amount of women who smoke. And smoking is a known risk factor of cardiovascular disease. And yet there was still not any push for studying for like talking about women's heart disease Mm. we have a number one killer in women smoking and still not even worried about it and alicia can you think of maybe some reasons that just it wasn't on anyone's mind why weren't they talking about women's heart health because they don't care about women Are they just okay, thought a little that more specific. women are like a more complicated version of men? So they were like, oh, if we caught the men covered, we got women covered? I don't know. 
A little, a little. One you already said earlier. That studies weren't being done on women? Yeah, yeah. And then there's one, like, small, small reason. I don't know. Okay, so the first tiny little reason is that so much of the emphasis on women's health was reproductive health. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so much, like, everything's focused on the uterus and other organs are left behind. Which, honestly, today, still kind of a problem. A lot of women's health is talking about reproductive health and not about women's health, like, as a whole, like, as a whole body. So that's a big reason that it wasn't thought of. But mostly it was because lack of research. Like, so until, like, the late 1900s, women of all childbearing abilities were banned from research trials. And this yeah. was like a huge reason as to why women were not in research trials. And if women aren't in research trials, then they can't study diseases, drugs, anything that can tell us anything about the progression of disease in that person. Like you need to be in the trial right. for us to know how it works in you. Anyway, so if you're a childbearing age or ability, you cannot do it, which means women from puberty to menopause were eliminated. Sexually active women were eliminated. Women whose partners had vasectomies were eliminated. Wait, what? You can't even get pregnant. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That one shook me. Wait, that one I don't understand. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Oh. Okay. (laughs) Great. Women on birth control were not allowed. LGBTQ women who weren't even sleeping with okay, men. Okay, so who was included? <laughs> no, nobody. No women, basically. It was like every everything they could think of for women to not be, because you're not going to include children in a trial. Right. And even postmenopausal women, you'd be like, okay, now I can't get pregnant. Now this group of women who are 51.5 years or older can participate in research. But no. Women on hormone therapy were also discluded from trials, which is a lot of women who are postmenopausal. And the hormone therapy was because they thought like, oh, they they have these hormone supplements that's going to mess up the trial, Mm. which is very common thought for why women should not be in research. The people's justification. So because there were all these limitations to women being in research as like subjects, they were just not. And studies were often released indicating the risk of cardiovascular disease, symptoms, treatment, blah, 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 without including a single woman. Numerous studies would be published talking about the benefits of angiograms or the benefits of aspirin use, and women wouldn't be in it at all. Mm. And But they would apply said research to women still. So, like, aspirin, for example, was said is, like, Something that's used in cardiovascular disease, but the studies that had that didn't have any women in them. Mm. So it might not actually be as beneficial in women. And women's bodies are different for all the reasons that people are scared to put women in clinical trials are the exact reason they need to be in clinical trials. So you can't assume that the study of men will benefit women as well. And research started to kind of get a hold of this in 1986. The NIH started to require studies to state if women were included or not. However, this policy is not always followed or enforced even today. Then in 1933, the FDA um, started to lift rules against drug trials on childbearing women. So they started to allow women on 
like accepted birth control methods to be allowed into trials. Mm. So they're starting to take baby steps. And I will say like the big pushback against childbearing women in clinical trials was due to that drug that was released in the 1900s yeah, the at some point. the teratogenic one. Yeah, so like these babies the, were... Yeah, it was the morning yeah. sickness medication, right? Yes, and they thought it was like so great and so many women took it, but it indeed was not great. The women who were pregnant while taking it had babies born like basically without any limbs. Yeah, hold on. What was that? Really called? bad. Oh, the lidamide, really the lidamide. Yeah, and that, that just so like bad. scared the bejeebies out of everyone in the research community, and that's why they put no women, but they just were thinking about it all wrong. Okay, so now that we have the baby steps of allowing women into research, they're finally able to study some things about cardiovascular disease in women. And lots of things came to light. So here are some findings from research studies. One finding was that estrogen is cardioprotective. Yeah. Which means that the high estrogen levels that women experience from puberty to menopause were like helping delay cardiovascular effects on women in that time. But it was found that after menopause, cardiac factors such as bad lipid levels, because you have good lipids and bad lipids. And lipids are the fats in your body, basically. So the bad lipids that you don't want to be high would increase a lot after menopause, which really increases your risk for atherosclerosis, that nasty disease that shoves cholesterol into the wall of your arteries. It was also found that other certain health factors had a greater risk for women than men, even though they were the same factors. So things like hypercholesterolemia, so having high cholesterol, having diabetes or high blood sugar, those things that are also risk factors for men in cardiovascular disease were even more detrimental in women. And then it was also shown through research that having diabetes or smoking throughout your life can actually decrease your estrogen levels, which is going to contribute to an increased risk of cardiovascular disease earlier in your life as a woman. So, but even with these increased research on women's risks, cardiovascular diseases still go missed in women all the time. So there was this one case study I read, which was shocking. And it's probably a familiar story to a lot of people from relatives or if anyone you've interacted with has had cardiovascular diseases in women. So this case study said, a middle-aged woman entered the emergency department complaining of fainting during exercise. The emergency docs thought that she might be having a panic attack and consulted psych and cardio right before discharging her to go home. But upon Further examination, it was found that she actually had signs of a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, and was sent to an emergency bypass surgery. Mm. So this patient was actually almost sent home because she did not present like a normal myocardial infarction patient. But it turns out that most women do not present normally, if you want to put normally in quotes, actually. Mm -hmm. People are often told that things like chest pain or shortness of breath mean that you could be having an MI. But this isn't always true for any patient in general, but especially for women who tend to present with more atypical symptoms such as 
pain in your neck, pain in your jaw, pain in your shoulder or your back, or even nausea and vomiting. Yeah. And this lack of a normal presentation in women often results in many people being sent home for the emergency department just to return with another heart attack, maybe a couple days later, or even die at home. So a lot of times, women have to convince their doctors to not discharge them, insisting that there is something very wrong. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. What year was the case report from? Do you know? I don't remember. Why? No, I'm just wondering because, I mean, like, I understand that that probably happens now that, like, women get cast aside as, like, oh, you're just having a panic attack. But I guess, like, I find that interesting because in my clinical reasoning that we've been taught, panic attacks on the differential diagnosis list, it's, like, one of the options, but it is not the top Mm -hmm. diagnosis. Like, you would have to rule out MI before you like settle on panic attack so that's why I ask because I just wonder if medical education has shifted since then to Mm -hmm. rule out life-threatening diseases if anyone comes in with like any kind of fainting shortness of breath pain vomiting anything like that Mm -hmm. other things get ruled out like you get labs on basically every patient that goes in the ED. And I and I think you would just get, like, troponin levels on those labs. And yeah, troponins, you do, like, an EKG usually. Yeah, you would just do an EKG. And those things, like, troponins are basically, like, mm-hmm. a, a component of heart muscle that if you're having heart mm-hmm. attack, if your heart's dying, your blood is going to have high troponin levels. And then, yeah, like Charlotte said, an EKG, you can get at the bedside in an ED... So I would just be super quick. So fast. She's like two minutes. So I would just be surprised if like someone came in like that now and was cast aside as having like a panic attack without ruling out life-threatening conditions. No, I definitely agree. And I think that like a lot of the issue stands more in like older physicians. Mm. That might not be the same. But because of like symptoms being dismissed, maybe in like doctors who haven't learned the same way we are, or maybe like in smaller hospital systems, things like that. Sometimes women have to literally convince their doctors to not discharge them, insisting that there might be something, like, extremely wrong. I know it's happened to my mom. She went in, like, feeling, like, very weird. It was, like, super abnormal. And she said she was having, like, sinus pain. Mm. And the doctors were like, all your tests are completely normal. Like, go home. And she was like, I'm not going home. Like, I do not feel okay. Like, Mm. this is, like, super weird, super off. And then she ended up having three dents put in, which are, like, things that open up your arteries in your heart after she like insisted over and over like i'm not going home like get get me a different doctor like there's something wrong and they like did additional testing and found that like something was missed Mm. which is crazy so because of situations like this this results in really sad statistics so by the age of 65 the number of deaths from cardiovascular disease is 11 percent higher in women than it is in men And within one year of a woman's first heart attack, their, their chance of having another heart attack is 35%, which in men, it's only 18%. So the atypical presentation of an MI within women that is misunderstood by many patients and physicians together contribute to this poor prognosis in women. I think a quote from this article I was reading on heart disease on women that discussed this, I think it was the author who her grandma had died of a heart attack 
because she presented to the ED with extreme stomach pain. And they said that the symptoms were too unusual for a heart attack diagnosis. And they sent her home and her grandma later died the next day. And this author questions that how can said symptoms be unusual when it's occurring in more than half the population? Which I thought was very interesting. But I want to pause here to talk to talk a little bit about the mental health a little bit. Because I mentioned how like the doctor thought she was having a panic attack. And... I have found through my own studies in medicine and just like reading stories on women's experiences in the ED that a lot of times people are just like, oh, you just feel anxious. Oh, you're just panicking. Like there's nothing actually wrong. And like it's a mental health emotional thing. And part of having a heart attack is feeling anxious a lot of times. Like having heart issues can make you feel very anxious. It can give you like this impending sense of doom and things that or make you feel like you're overthinking. And even a lot of women will just think that they're overthinking things and end up not going to the emergency department because they're like, I'm just panicking. Like, I just need to calm down. Even though it's, like, completely abnormal for them. Um, Alicia, did you want to say anything about what you were thinking about? Yeah, I just just was thinking about, like, how, kind of what I said before about how panic attacks are usually on a list of differentials. Like, when we learned about chest pain for example we learn Mm -hmm. you have to think about it like or one way to think about chest pain is like a systems-based approach so you think about like every system and like what could be causing the chest pain and Mm -hmm. one of them is panic attack like panic attacks do manifest in physical ways where you Mm -hmm. feel physically ill and you are sick because and you're having a panic attack that's a very real diagnosis but i think conflating the two and like putting off a heart diagnosis to say that it's all in one's head just seems ridiculous and I also think Mm -hmm. something that continues to come up in my education probably in yours and like I don't know my mom's a physician she tells me this all the time is she's like everything is in the history Mm -hmm. the story is what you need to use to diagnose a patient with something. And like sometimes like, because you can't rely on labs for everything. Like you have to like listen to the patient's like whole story and then labs and things just like confirm what you might be thinking. I mean, I know that sometimes people come in and they just have like a problem that is kind of, confusing and confounding and and they run labs Mm -hmm. and there's no findings but the thing is like based off of what I've learned and like what mentors have told me and stuff it's like you have to listen to the patient's story and so if the Mm -hmm. patient's coming in and they're like no something's actually wrong like I don't think I'm just having like a panic attack I don't think it's in my head then like I believe that you owe it to your patient to try to put together their story and piece together what's going on Instead of just, like, mm-hmm. sending them off. Or at least, like, giving them, like, a good contingency plan. Like, okay, right now I can't figure it out. But if you feel this or this or this kind of symptom, like, come back immediately. I don't know. I just, maybe yeah. I don't know enough yet. I know I'll learn more next year when I'm actually in on the wards and, like, in the hospital. But I would want to say that, like, you would listen mm-hmm. to your patients 
And I think as medical students, we're in a really unique position to be able to do that like a lot more because we're closer to the patients, but we're not the physician or the resident who's like inundated with patients in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so true. I feel like in half of my, because I just finished my cardiovascular unit, most of will be like starting a lecture on hypertension or starting a lecture on congestive heart failure or some type of heart condition. Every single time they're like, you need to take a good history and you can't see that from a lab. So I agree. Yeah. All right. Okay. So moving on. So now I want to touch on some risk factors for cardiovascular disease, specifically in women. So many risk factors are the same as in men, such as hypertension, which is just high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, unhealthy eating, lack of activity, things like that. And while these factors look the same as men, they also um, are very different in clinical practice. So studies have shown that physicians do not give women the same aggressive treatments for underlying conditions, such as ones Mm. I just mentioned. And some doctors don't even speak to their female patients about their risk of cardiovascular disease in general. One study showed that only 38% of physicians admitted to talking to their female patients about cardiovascular disease risk, which is like nothing. And then from the general public, only 50% of women know that cardiovascular disease is a risk of death. Like the answer seems to always be cancer, which is for sure a huge risk. But not many people know cardiovascular disease. So with the lack of education coming from the community and from physicians, how would patients know to focus on cardiovascular health? That's just a rhetorical question. Like, how would, how would, how would they know? Yeah, exactly. So there's something missing there. But of course, women are complex humans, complex, beautiful beings, as we know. So there are also some non-traditional risk factors that men do not experience. Many, many of which are associated with pregnancy. So pregnant women are at risk of developing hypertension, high blood pressure, um, and diabetes while in pregnancies, which pose a risk for both the mom and the child. And another risk factor is autoimmune disease. Mm. I'm not sure if we talked a lot about autoimmune disease on here at all, but autoimmune disease is basically when your body is attacking itself. And it's about nine times more prevalent in women than yeah. in men. Like almost every single case is in women, not men. Um, and a lot of these diseases pose a risk to your heart. So diseases like systematic lupus or arthritis. One study actually said that if you have lupus, your risk of getting an MI is almost 50 times higher than the general public. That's crazy, but I like totally Which is- believe it which is insane yeah and then there's also cancer to consider so if you have breast cancer then you're going to be getting radiation and chemotherapy directed right at your chest and what's under your breasts your heart so that radiation and chemotherapy is going to affect your heart and have negative effects on it which can result in cardiovascular disease down the way Mm. and then lastly if you're on birth control you also have an increased risk if you're on oral birth control if you're taking the pill you have increased susceptibility to clotting and thrombus formation, which is basically when your blood becomes a little ball inside your arteries or veins and gets stuck there. And you don't want that. Those are just some fun things that women get to experience that causes increased risk. Yeah. So, but now that we know that um, some cardiovascular diseases present differently in women and that the risk factors are different, let's talk about some specific diseases that are prevalent in women. 
And I have a list for you. So these are the ones I can find, but I'm sure there's even more. Alicia, can you think of any from your studies before I begin? Pulmonary embolism? Is that cardiovascular? I don't even know if that counts. I don't have that, but it would make sense because if you've increased clotting, then it can like go up to your lungs, which yeah. is what pulmonary embolism is. Okay, so we have fibromuscular dysplasia, oh. which is a vascular disease where one of the arteries going to your kidney is like thickened basically and there's like all these issues and it basically causes you to have hypertension or high blood pressure which is not good for your heart there's takasu arteritis arteritis. yeah that's another vasculitis yep i just was literally reviewing that before this but it's basically inflammation in your large arteries so like subclavian your aorta which comes out of your heart yeah like things like that it causes a weak pulse in your upper body and you can cause you to have neurologic so like brain and visual defects very fun things um an atrioventricular nodal re-entrant tachycardia oh yeah totally an avnrt yep yeah it's when the electrical activity in your heart is originating basically lower than it should it's with like bouncing around within your ventricles and it's, you don't want that to happen. I don't want to go too much into heart anatomy, but basically your heart is beating not from where you want it to. And then atrial fibrillation is basically another disease where you're beating in the wrong area. And then we have peripartum cardiomyopathy, mm. which is when your heart gets bigger at the end of your pregnancy which is extremely unsafe. And actually, if you develop this condition, then you're advised to have no further pregnancies afterward because it's just too big of a risk. But my favorite one is another cardiomyopathy. And I just think this one's like so interesting. It's called the broken heart syndrome. Oh. And it is seen, there's another name for it, but I don't remember what it is at this moment. It's seen in postmenopausal women, like predominantly. Are you looking up? what it's called i am because is it hoka something with a t oh yeah toke something oh takatsubo cardiomyopathy interesting okay it's a dilated cardiomyopathy for all those cardiologists out there interesting okay but basically it's in postmenopausal women and it happens after a huge life event happens so like It's been seen in women after, like, a loved one dies or after a dog dies. Like, something, like, happens. It's just, like, a lot. And this causes an increase in epinephrine in your body. So, like, if you're being chased by a bear is a very common example. Like, epinephrine in your body goes up. It's just, like, stress hormones. So that rapid increase to that huge, like, vent goes to your heart, to this one specific part of your heart. And it basically causes your heart to go into shock. And it just, like, stops beating in one area. And it only happens, like, in this very distinct, small population. And it's just called broken heart syndrome. It's easily treatable, surprisingly, which I think is weird because your heart's just, like, literally in shock and it's not beating because it's overstimulated. But kind of wild, in my opinion. Yeah, that is. So those are all the um, fun female-specific diseases I got for you. There's probably more out there, but I don't want to um, bore you or terrify you by going through all of them (laughs) if there's more. Yeah. But since I probably already terrified you by talking about all the reasons that women are at risk for cardiovascular disease, let's talk about how to reduce your risk. 
Number one, okay, my list is not most important to least important. It's just a list. So number one, have a healthy diet. You should have balanced nutritional meals, not too many processed foods, not too many foods with too much fat, things like that. Just think of like the my plate. Think of Michelle Obama telling Michelle you to Obama. eat your greens. <laughs> like just think of that and make that your diet. Um, knowing your blood pressure is important. I know the last couple times I went to the doctor, they're like, what's your normal blood pressure? I'm like, I need to remember this. So write it down if you have to. Just know your blood pressure because if it changes, that way you know that it changed. Mm-hmm. And you can take steps to reduce your blood pressure. So like a low-sodium diet, great. When you're at, out getting sushi, you just go for the low-sodium soy sauce. Don't get the regular soy sauce. They taste the exact same. Like yeah. just do the healthier one. Quit smoking. And if you don't smoke, don't ever start. And if you do smoke, please try and stop. There are many resources out there to help you. Actually, I think a really interesting statistic is no matter where you are in your smoking progression, like you've been smoking for like 20 years or something, if you stop smoking, then you'll be able to get back on track with your like pulmonary health, like your lung health. That if you stop smoking, like if you like completely stop no more, then you can like have a positive trajectory in your health. It's not going to like keep plummeting. So stopping smoking is just so important. It has so many benefits to your health if you are already a smoker. So yeah, check your cholesterol when you go to the doctor. Know those levels. If you have high cholesterol, take steps to reduce it. Know your blood glucose. Take steps to reduce that if you need to. Limit how much alcohol you drink. Alcohol has lots of bad effects on the heart and on the body. Manage your stress levels, which is a lot to say because I don't even know how to... <laughs> how I'd reduce stress sometimes, but you know, do your best. And then also physical activity. Even 30 minutes a day can help and focus on a rotation of aerobics. So like going for a run or going for a walk or riding your bike um, and strength. So using your body as body weight or using weights or whatever you want. And then stretching because you need to stretch to keep your muscles from getting sore and like just giving you the abilities to do the other workouts. So Try to integrate some type of physical activity into your day. And those are my eight quick tips to reducing your risk of cardiovascular disease. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Okay, but before we end, I also want to give a couple of tips on how to advocate for yourself at the doctor. Mm. Because while education on women in cardiovascular disease is, gr- is growing, as Alicia mentioned, like how we're being taught to address things cardiovascular disease is very proactive. Uh, we can't always depend on doctors to understand everything. Like some doctors have been out of medical school for so long and maybe they're not involved in academic medicine. So their medical practice is just like everything they've ever known. Sometimes you just need to advocate for yourself a little more and push your doctors to be better. And sometimes they'll really like this and they want you to work with them. So a couple quick tips. If your symptoms are unusual for you, then it's worth getting checked out. Two, if you feel unright, like unsettled about your doctor's decision, challenge it a little bit. Have a second conversation. Ask more questions. Insist upon whatever treatment you think you need. Just talk to them more. Like keep that conversation going. Don't just be like, yep, and then leave the office and then sit at home and be stressed about like, I don't think that was right. Just take it uh, a little bit of a stand advocate for yourself and saying, you know, I'm going to really dig deeper into this. 
then lastly, it's your body. You know when something is wrong, like we were saying later, like if you know something's wrong, tell everyone. When you get to the emergency department, for example, like you need to tell your story probably like five times. You have to tell the person you're checking in with. You have to tell the nurse who's taking your vitals. You have to tell the nurse who's putting you in your bed. You have to tell the doctor. Like you have to tell everyone over and over. Tell your story. Give a good history of your symptoms and just tell them exactly how you feel. Don't leave anything out. Just trust that you know what's wrong with your own body because you know how you feel in your day-to-day and just give your doctor all that information the best you can. Yeah, those are my quick three tidbits to advocate for yourself and what to do to get the best care you can. I love that. So cardiovascular disease continues to be a growing field of research when it comes to women's health, considering the research began, you know, a couple decades late or a couple too many decades late. But with more and more research pointing to the high risks that women face in cardiovascular disease, it is becoming increasingly important to raise awareness around these statistics to all women. We should be encouraging women to talk to their doctors about their cardiovascular disease risk and what they can do to aid in prevention. And doctors should be taking steps to educate their patients on the risks, the signs, and the symptoms of prevalent diseases. Just think how a single conversation could end up saving a woman's life in the future. Yay! And tell my story. Well, are you ready to discuss things, Alicia? I am. I am. Alrighty, let's do it. Do you have any thoughts pertaining to said heart diseases? <laughs> what a funny way of introducing it. Um, I just wrote down a few notes of things that I just like either found interesting or surprising or shocking or just like frustrating. I mean, as we know, really annoying and like honestly like dangerous that women were excluded from research for so long. And like that just kind of reminded me as a researcher and clinician and like person in academia presently and like maybe in the future the importance of like conducting good research with good representative populations that are including a diverse group of people Mm -hmm. so that the research can be generalizable and applicable to a lot of people including women something else I was thinking about that is random but interesting is estrogen as a protective measure And if that's why giving estrogen in menopause is like, I wonder if that's like protective of your Mm -hmm. heart. I'm not sure, but I do wonder. And I know that you can't give supplemental estrogen unless the woman has had a hysterectomy or the person with the uterus has had a hysterectomy. So their uterus is removed because that's like, it can cause like cancers and stuff. But I wonder if estrogen is protective of of the heart in menopause, and that's why we give it as like a systemic like supplement. I don't know. And then, yeah, smoking's so bad for you. I was just um, whenever I think about like the classic, I mentioned pulmonary embolism. Charlotte kind of explained what it was, but it's like basically like a blood clot in your lungs, which is like really really mm-hmm. dangerous, and you can die from it. And smoking, the classic like presentation is like woman in her mid-20s is on oral contraceptives and smokes and she takes a flight from New York to California and she comes in with shortness of breath 
And it's like, okay, she had a, she's having a pulmonary yeah. embolism because the whole thing is like she was sitting on this mm-hmm. flight. That's like something else that's so random. But like if you just like sit all day or you like tend to not move around, maybe like get up, take a walk, fidget mm-hmm. around because it's just like good to like keep your blood flowing, which seems kind of silly, but like it's just really good for your heart yeah. health. Honestly. I always find myself like, like clenching my like calf muscles when I'm just like sitting, just to try to like get the blood squeezing around down there. So it's not just sitting there, like <laughs> moving my feet that's around. That's so funny. So yeah, like that's like a small random thing I was thinking about. And yeah, just like other things that also put women at increased risk of heart disease. Like we touched on it a little bit, but something that I don't know if we like really honed in on is how diabetes has such a profound impact on your risk for heart disease because like for diabetes the complications of like not managing it well are the first risk is like heart Mm -hmm. risk and I guess I just think about that because like diabetes runs like in my family and so like that's something I think about often but that's a big risk and that's the first thing that doctors look at in patients so those are all my thoughts they're kind of all everywhere but they yeah They just like that kind of kept coming up. Yeah, for sure. So in response to your question about giving estrogen in menopause. So I was like skimming an article. So I don't want to say that this is 100% the answer, but I swear in this article I was skimming. It was talking about how giving estrogen, like supplemental estrogen, actually will not help in cardiovascular health. The risks like outweighed the benefits of it. So it's not given. Mm. Like, especially since it is cardioprotective, like that'd be sick. But it looks like it's not the solution, sadly. It's just really tough because, like, the risk of heart disease goes up in older women, like, after the age of 55. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that a lot of it is because of the estrogens, like, protective factors. But then I think about men, and I'm like, they don't have estrogen, like, as high of estrogen levels. I mean, I know they're still at increased risk, but are we at equal risk? I don't know. And also, there's... Um, when we're talking about like men versus women, I always find it interesting that I was like talking and one of my clinical skills about this, how men, like they feel chest pain. They're like going to the ER. There is no second guessing. So actually men who present with an MI are treated faster and have better results just because they get there and they have a typical presentation, like most of the time. And they know exactly yeah. what it feels like. They have that chest pain. They're like, nope, not doing this. And then they go. But for women who, mm-hmm. even if women like do present with chest pain, like I said earlier, sometimes women are like, oh, it's fine. Like, I'm really busy. I just, I don't want to go in right, right now. Like, it'll go away. And sometimes it will go away. Like, you'll have chest pain and then like an hour later, it's fine. But that doesn't mean you didn't have an MI. And like, you could be at further risk of having another one in the future or a complication that would be even worse. So it's even more important or just because of that, like women's results, like from post MIs worse. And then also the idea that like women have atypical symptoms. I really like that quote of like, how is it atypical if it's over half the population? Because like for real, there are so many symptoms of having a heart attack that are not chest pain. And it's not only women who present with them, women present with them more than men, but you can be a man and you can have extreme abdominal pain and it can be a heart attack like right I don't know, just, it kind of like goes back to that 
idea we always talk about of like what is normal like is there a normal should we be like presenting to the public like this is normal what idea is that giving people is that saving lives is it like not saving lives that'd be a good question for people who advertise cardiac health because how are they like teaching it to the public i don't know right like talking about like typical and like even saying typical like oh this is a typical presentation you would never think or at least my head I'm not one to usually be like oh like I'm gonna have an atypical presentation of something Mm -hmm. so let me look into all the ways that that could manifest is I'd be like oh if it's typical like I'm pretty typical like I'm probably gonna have like a normal Mm -hmm. presentation and and that's just not always true exactly and it's like terrifying to think these things I understand that like people don't want to be like oh my god I could have an atypical presentation and you're like constantly worried about it or something. But like, it's just like good to know and to be educated on the subject. Cause if you do just, if you just know that something is wrong and you just feel so weird and like you're having this symptom that you never have, like that's probably a sign. And yeah. it doesn't always mean you're having a heart attack, but it's, it's worth going in check. Super important. Yeah. I agree. This is a different question than we usually have. I'm calling it a challenge question, as in like a challenge for us to do something. Us as in me and you and everyone listening to this. So Alicia, what are some goals that we can set in our lives? We, as in me and you and everyone listening, to set ourselves on a positive path in cardiovascular health. Like what's your goal? I think like we each have to think about our lives the way we live our lives and the risks that we bring into our own existences like example my family history is different from your family Mm -hmm. history which is different from our listeners family history so like we each have to look at ourselves and like look at the way that we live our lives and the risk factors that we bring Mm -hmm. inherently and assess our risk for getting Mm -hmm. heart disease which is already like at baseline higher than others. And like based off of our individual histories, maybe increase or decrease in like a risk. But I think that's like the first thing or what I hope that we can all do is like you were saying, it's not a fun thing to think about. It's not like really light and easy, but it's like, okay, objectively, I have to think about this in terms of my long-term mm-hmm. health because being proactive, it's like skincare. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm saying this is someone who literally got into skincare <laughs> one year ago, but I'm like, okay, me putting in this like one year of skincare is hopefully going to do like a lot for my skin health down the line. If I'm going to do that for my skin, I should for sure do that for yeah. my heart. Probably the most important organ of my whole body. Take small changes. And I think like it's easy to be like, oh, eat a balanced diet and like do this and that. I don't no. do that most of the time. It's just hard to like exist, be perfect all the time. And it's expensive to eat a balanced diet sometimes. Oh, it's so like- expensive. We do not talk about the socioeconomic burdens that come with like doing all the yeah. things that we're saying like just exercise more and like eat a healthy diet and manage your stress and do all these things like it's so difficult to do that so I think like baby steps in making small attainable goals something that I always tell myself that I do need to do better about is like drinking mm-hmm. more water <laughs> because like when you drink more water you can just like flush your system better and you can ensure you're not dehydrated so you have like a good blood volume things like that or like you were saying cutting salt a little bit 
that's just generally good for you. Cutting salt out of your diet can keep your blood yeah. pressure low. And, like, that's nice. And those are, like, small changes that I think are easier to do than, like, getting a soul cycle oh God. like membership and going to soul <laughs> I don't know who has time like, to do and that. doing a bunch yeah. of aerobic yeah I don't know why that was the first place I thought of because I guess I there's a soul cycle here and I was curious about it and I looked at it and I was like I no. cannot afford this like I yeah. would never do this but it's like one of those things or like looking into medications I know medications we don't want to start taking medications but it reminds me of like retinol cream. It's like, okay, at what age would it be beneficial for me to take a baby mm-hmm. aspirin? Because baby aspirin has like protective heart effects. It's a blood thinner. So it can like yeah. prevent your clotting risk, things like that. Like, oh, what age would that be useful for me? So going to your doctor, being inquisitive and asking those questions, I think is good. And I thought of this like little, um, I thought of a little comparison when you were talking about you know tips to advocate for Mm -hmm. your health and I was thinking about um this haircut experience I had once (laughs) multiple times and I was just like oh you know a doctor is basically like your (laughs) hairstylist or your hairdresser but like way more important but it's like okay would you want to leave you know that feeling when you're like sitting and you're getting a haircut and then the person like cuts your hair and they don't do it exactly mm-hmm. the way that you want. And and then you feel this like sense of like pressure because you're like, do yeah. I tell them that it's not exactly how I want it? They're the professional, right? Like they should right, know right. how it looks good. And like, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, I don't like it. But <laughs> <Yeah>. you should. <laughs> you should. And your doctor is no different. They're a person providing you a service. And like, yes, they know a lot, but they don't. But you mm-hmm. know a lot, too. And you know what you need and what you want. And so, like, you just being like, I don't like <laughs> this haircut. Like, I don't yeah. feel right. I don't know. That was, like, a thought For that sure. came to my head. And, like, like I said, like, most doctors, like, hopefully wouldn't be like, nope, I'm completely wrong. You're, I'm completely right. You're wrong. Like, I'm not going to listen to you now because you, like, asked me another question. Like, they'll be like, oh, okay. Like, I like was wrong or I should have rethought my plan like there's just so many different ways you can go down oh the other thing I was just gonna say is on us on people listening who are going into healthcare, taking the time to look over those atypical presentations of heart attacks or other heart diseases and taking the time to educate our patients and I think that's something that I was I also touched on this, but as medical students, we're in such a unique position to be able to do that because we have fewer patients to see. So we have more time with Mm -hmm. our patients. And that means we're able to do a little bit more educating, which is really valuable because I think something that we're missing a lot of in healthcare now, and it's not the fault of the physicians, it's a fault of the system is uh, we are lacking time Mm -hmm. with patients. Yeah. You're rushed through things. And that's so unfortunate. And so you have to pick and choose what you're going to share with them and how much time you're going to spend talking to them. But I think patients like just need time and education portions of visits take time. I think my only thoughts were like for setting goals for yourself and like what you can do for your own cardiovascular health is like, I feel like whenever I try to set a goal, I feel like it needs to be like this big giant goal, life changing in the moment I need to do it like all the time and every day. And like, sometimes it's not like that. 
I really think easy stuff, like I said, like the soy sauce, or like if you're making a salad, like maybe getting grilled chicken instead of fried chicken. They're just like little steps you can take to make certain things just healthier. You can like walk a little farther than you're used to. You can do a 15 minute workout instead of laying in bed and watching TikTok for 15 minutes. Like there are so many like small things Mm -hmm. that you do have to like have the conscious effort to think about, but it's not like you're setting this ginormous goal that I need to work out an hour a day. And if I don't, then my heart health is going to be crap. Not true. Maybe for some people, like down the line, if you're at a point where your cardiovascular health is not good, you need to make big changes in your life. For sure, that's a thing. But if you're just trying to make small steps in your life now, like it can be exactly that. It can be small steps. It doesn't have to be a stressful thing. (laughs) Yeah. Also, just like building habits. And I think when we say like healthy habits, like it sounds like this buzzword that honestly kind of irritates me. But one of my friends was like, oh, they say that to build a habit, you have to do something consistently for like 21 days or something like that. So maybe that's like a fun thing. It's just like Mm -hmm. a challenge of like, okay, I'm going to do this every day for 21 days. And it's like, I'm going to work out for 15 minutes, like something small like that, that's that you if you build it into a habit, then it's more likely that you'll continue to do it even if it's not every single day you'll still do it more often yeah. than you would or like drinking water if you just have your water bottle next to you all day it's just gonna be there and you're gonna get bored and you're gonna drink water just out of boredom like i know i'm like oh my god i need to go my water bottle sitting over there on my it's desk too far away like, oh, it needs I to need be it. within like elbow distance like the elbow doesn't have to leave the table the hand just swivels and it hits the water bottle like that's the distance <laughs> That you're going for. <laughs> Hand swivel proximity. Okay, thank you, Charlotte. It's You don't even have to stretch the arm. Ideal, honestly. <laughs> All right. If you good, want other okay. good tidbits and life advice like that, <laughs> then please subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe on any podcasting app, whatever one's your favorite. And then whichever one you like, um, you can also leave us a rating review. I think you can leave ratings on podcast apps that are not Apple Podcasts. But for us, we know that Apple Podcasts is just the best place for leaving a review. Yes. And if you, again, want to hear more from us on the regular, you should follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and we're pretty active on those sites. So you should check us out and then also check out our website for more information, show notes, sources merch that's from scrubs.com. yeah and then as our podcast grows we're interested in doing more collaborations and making bonus content for you all so if you or someone you know is interested in working with us just shoot us an email or an insta dm absolutely and lastly here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today and may we do the same for those who come after Yay. us all right see everyone in episode 27 Yay, see you next Bye. Time.